Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we pray your blessing on incline our hearts to hear from you, to hear from your word. God, open our eyes and our minds so that we can see your glories in your word. Father, we want us to unite, be united to your way of thinking. And God, ultimately, we ask that we would be satisfied this morning with your steadfast love. We ask for this grace in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, this is where our first message, really, where we're digging into chapter by chapter the Gospel of Matthew. When I was younger, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house, and they had a pretty rigid routine with what they did in their morning. They would get up early, they would make a pot of coffee, and then they would read the paper. Now, for those of you like under 20, when I say paper, that's like shorthand for newspaper. Um, you can think of it like a, a day-old Twitter feed that's slightly longer and better written pages. The newspaper would print what they thought were the most important stories on the very first pages, uh, but we quickly skipped over those and we went to our favorite sections. Now, as the budding intellectual of the family, of course, I went right to the comics section of the paper. My grandmother, somewhat strangely, would read the building permits, just like to know what was going on. My grandfather, again somewhat strangely, reached for the obituary section. Now, I don't know if this is just a practice he developed later in life when some of the people he knew were, were listed in this section, but I would ask him, like, why do you like reading that? And he would say, like, I, I love to hear the stories of people's lives. I love to hear what they did, what was significant in their lives. There was a, a section in this, these obituaries that was always a bit strange to me. Like the opening paragraph was about where this person was born, his parents, and sometimes even his grandparents. And to me it seems strange when you only have a few paragraphs and you're telling the story of a 90-year-old's life, why you would spend so much time on ancestry. I suppose that's probably just my American way of looking at things, that I think about someone's identity in terms of what they have done or what they have achieved. But birth and heritage can be incredibly significant in understanding the identity of a person, especially when we think of hereditary roles like kings. Ancestry is crucial. Ancestry tells us the identity of a person, and the authority or rights of a person. And that's why Matthew begins with an ancestry. He begins with a genealogy. He wants to establish at the very beginning who Jesus is. Now he's going to spend the rest of the gospel saying what Jesus has done and accomplished. That's, that's important. But he starts, particularly in the first four chapters, establishing the credentials the identity of Jesus. Matthew is writing, urging us to follow Jesus, the Davidic Messiah who establishes the kingdom of God. Now, I'll explain those terms in a moment. And his main point in chapter 1 
is that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah. Worship Him. Well, our text today divides into to three main sections. Uh, we'll spend a little time on verse 1, and then we'll look at the genealogy, and then look at the second genealogy. So first, the Christ of the Christian Bible. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the beginning of the New Testament. Now, many of you, if you flip back a page, you'll see something like the New Testament, which, of course, presupposes the Old Testament. Now, Matthew has a special place in the Christian Bible because he's placed at the very beginning of the New Testament. The Bible, the story about Jesus and the redemption that God is accomplishing in him, is a, is a story that takes two testaments to tell. And it's bound together in one Christian Bible. If we're going to understand what follows in the New Testament, the, the story about Jesus and his followers, we need to understand how the whole Old Testament is pointing us to Christ. And Matthew does that at the outset with this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were paying attention last week when, when Chris preached as an overview sermon in Matthew, he noted that there is something significant here. So if, if we look at this genealogy, I know that's small print, but I think you can see the, the main point here, is that this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, is a direct quotation of Genesis 5.1 the book of the genealogy of mankind. So what Matthew is doing with this very first verse is saying, you need to think of Jesus in terms of the Old Testament. And in fact, this is the one time in the genealogy where Matthew begins with the present and works his way backwards. He begins with Jesus and then goes to David and then goes to Abraham. Matthew is pointing us back to the Old Testament. He wants us to understand Jesus as the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. So Matthew 1.1 alludes to Genesis 5.1. Genesis 5.1 is the book of the genealogy of mankind. And over the course of several chapters, chapters 5 through 11, what Moses does is gives us a genealogy of mankind. And where he leaves off, you might have guessed it, is with Abraham, which is the very place that Matthew picks up. But the genealogy uh, is the genealogy of mankind, and if we're going to understand that, we don't stop at chapter 11, we don't stop at chapter 5, we need to go back even further to Genesis chapter 3. So we have this uh, allusion, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the book of the genealogy of mankind. But to understand that, we need to understand what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation of the good world, that things are as they should be. Chapter 3 describes the rebellion against God. And the world starts to plummet into disarray and destruction. But God says, 
and Genesis 3 that it won't always be this way. So he addresses the serpent, the deceiver, with this phrase. He says, I will put enmity between you, that is the deceiver or the serpent, and the woman. And not just between you and her, but between her offspring. Remember, it's the genealogy of mankind and your offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a prophecy, even at the very beginning here, that someday there will come a deliverer. There will come a serpent slayer, someone who will crush evil and restore goodness in the world. And when Matthew begins with the book of genealogy of Jesus, he's intending us to see Jesus in light of the whole story of Scripture, stretching all the way back to Genesis 1 and finding its climax in Jesus. Well, we have this book of genealogy of this person named Jesus. And we need to understand something of the titles with which he is described. So Jesus, or, or sometimes translated Joshua in other portions of the Bible, is, is the deliverer. It literally means Yahweh, or God saves. So this is the genealogy of a Savior. A Savior from Genesis 3. He is the Christ, now, when we hear the term Christ, we, we tend to just use it as a personal name. We, we can talk about Christ, but it really, in the Old Testament, is this idea of the anointed one, the one set apart for God's service. So a, a priest or a prophet could be anointed, but as the Old Testament develops, this term becomes more specific, and it tends to hone in on the ultimate anointed one. The ultimate anointed one, the ultimate one in the line of David who would be our rescuer. So Jesus the Christ is described as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, these people are singled out for prominence because God has made specific promises Abraham and David. So thank Old Testament again. Thank Genesis chapter 12 and following. God enters into a relationship or covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, among other things, that there will be a seed or a deliverer in light of Galatians 3 that will come from the line of Abraham who will be a blessing and salvation to the nations. And this blessing gets focused several books and chapters later on David and his line. So that text that we read together from 2 Samuel 7 is the focusing of these blessings on one particular person, a king. A king, as we read, who would reign forever a forever king who would rule particularly over God's people in Israel. Now, I know that that's a lot with one verse. So I want to read for you how one pastor summarized this. He said, Who is Jesus and why has he come? According to Matthew's very first verse, 
Jesus is the human rescuer promised in the early chapters of Genesis who will reign as Israel's king, the Messiah, and will bless Israel and all the nations of the earth with salvation. That's an amazing statement about who Jesus is and what he will do. But what are the practical implications for us? The first thing I want to say is, this is an exhortation for us to be whole Bible Christians. We need to be whole Bible Christians. If we're going to understand who Jesus is, what He has done, and how we should respond rightly to Him, we need to understand Jesus as the climax and the fulfillment of God's revelation spanning two testaments. Sometimes, you might notice in your own life, I've noticed it in mine, that we have a tendency to get really excited about certain portions of Scripture. So sometimes, you know, we we teach through James, for example, and people are like, that was so practical. Like when we read James, it says, you know, be quick to hear, slow to speak. It's like, I know how to live that out. And then you can be assigned to preach on the genealogy of Jesus. And you get some interesting comments throughout the week. Um, You know, some people say, well, I'm going to have an extra cup of coffee that morning. Um, And some people said, I am really excited to dig into the genealogy. And I want to challenge us to be whole Bible Christians. So we would read all of Scripture as God's Word to us. There's a second implication from this very first verse. And it's about the cost of discipleship. The whole thrust of the Gospel of Matthew is that we would follow Jesus. It is a call to discipleship. And this is not an easy call. In a few chapters, Jesus will say to a would-be disciple, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. What he's saying in that is like, it's going to cost you. If you're going to follow me, realize that it's not not one of those roles that's going to be easy. Or he says later, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The call to follow Jesus is a call to deny yourself. It's a call to follow Him at all costs. And the question that we should have is, is He worth it? If we're going to give everything to follow Jesus, we need to know, is He worth it? And that is the thrust of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is worthy of following. Jesus is worthy of your worship. Well, after that introductory verse, we we come to the section, the genealogy, the Christ, son of David. Now, I mentioned to you the function of genealogies is to reveal a person's identity and authority. So, as we read this, we need to think, what is Matthew trying to tell us about the identity and authority of Jesus? 
Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, so I want to read this carefully. There's part of me that wants to look at every name and, and tell you the story of every single name, but I don't think that we'll be able to accomplish that in this morning's sermon alone. But I want to make a few comments so we understand what Matthew is doing here. It's a very carefully constructed genealogy to make particular points about the identity and authority of Jesus. So at the outset, we can see that there are two people that are particularly prominent. David and Abraham are mentioned at the beginning and the end of the genealogy. Now we saw in verse 1 why this is. Because Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, particularly to David and Abraham. Jesus is the forever king in the line of David who saves his people and is a blessing to the nations and the promises to Abraham. Many people have also noticed that there are some unexpected inclusions in this genealogy. Now, the unexpected inclusions are predominantly these, these women here. Now, women in this culture wouldn't be valued like they should. And they wouldn't be included in a genealogy. You typically trace genealogy through uh, the kings, right? Who are men. 
What's more is some of these women are foreigners, and some of these women aren't necessarily models of godly behavior. So we start with this person, Tamar. And Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute to continue the line of Judah. And then we move to Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who believed in the promises of God. So she had an ungodly occupation, and she wasn't in the line of Abraham. Then we move to Ruth, who was a Moabitess. Again, not someone in the line of Abraham. You're like, why is she included in this genealogy? And then Bathsheba, who's not even named, but she's called the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was a Hittite, so it might mean that Bathsheba was a Hittite as well. Again, not in the line of Abraham. And then we come to Mary. Mary, a woman whose integrity many might have questioned in the first century. Why are these women, these women, some of them foreign women, included in this genealogy? Well, one thing we need to learn from this is that God is faithful to His promises, even when people are unfaithful. And including these outcasts demonstrates this, that Jesus, this Davidic Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, is the Savior of the whole world. The kingdom that this Messiah brings is a worldwide kingdom. And I know that some people, when they come this morning, probably feel like some of these women. You feel like an outcast. You feel like I could never have a place in the people of God. I want you to know, even in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew is telling us that this is a place for all of those who recognize Jesus as King and trust in His work for salvation. You might feel like you don't belong, but you belong here for all those who call on Jesus as Savior. Another remarkable feature here is that the first and the last child that are mentioned are, are miracle babies. So if you know something of the story of Isaac, his parents were well past the age of bearing children, but God miraculously intervened so that Abraham and Sarah could have a child, which of course points us to this miraculous, even more miraculous, conception of Jesus. And it said she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We'll look at more of that in a bit. But the main point of this, the main thrust of this genealogy, is that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. It's especially important for us to see how this theme unfolds. So how it unfolds in this genealogy is that David is fronted at the beginning, and then we have this term Christ that runs throughout. So Matthew is trying to say, if you want to understand Jesus, understand him in terms of being the Christ. And then we have David mentioned more times in this genealogy, then Jesus is mentioned. So Matthew is pointing us 
to the significance of David for understanding who Jesus is. And then we have this thing at the end here uh, that's somewhat peculiar to us at the outset. We have this 14, 14, and 14. Now, some of you are digging into your Old Testament, and you're saying, well, Matthew skips over a few generations. That's not deceitful. That's deliberate. People know who the intervening generations are. But what Matthew is doing is he's constructing this genealogy to make a specific point. Now, what's the point? What's the significance of 14? So those are small numbers there, but you can count and see who is the 14th person that's mentioned. It's David. So this structuring element that Matthew chooses is even more so pointing us to David. Now, in the ancient world, they had a a way to to tell a, a number as by a reference to a letter. So like, if we did this in English, A would correspond to 1, B would correspond to 2, and I would get confused if I kept going on. But a number could be represented by a letter. So in Hebrew, you have this term David. I know those are funny looking letters, but that's, that's what Hebrew looks like. And so you have the, the D in David that corresponds to 4, 6, 4. Again, equals 14. Some of you are saying, oh, but remember, Hebrew reads backwards, so it's actually 4 plus 6 plus 4. <laughs> See, my wife didn't think you'd think that was funny, so <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I, I included that there. So all of these 14s are, are pointing us to David, but there's more significance here in that it's structured around 14 generations successively. So if we read this, there's 14 generations without a king culminating in a king. And then there's 14 generations with these kings. And then 14 generations without a king. Now, if that pattern holds, what do we expect? We expect the arrival of a king. It might be helpful to think of this in terms of a chart of our hopes. So Matthew begins by saying that he's going to tell you about Jesus and his genealogy, which we're to understand in terms of those promises throughout the Old Testament, that serpent-slaying rescuer in Genesis chapter 3, that son of Abraham who's a blessing to the nations and bringing salvation, that son of David who is the forever king. So when we begin with Abraham and this genealogy, there's an excitement that we're picking up that genealogy, and we're going to have the hope of Genesis 3.15. And we march straight up to David, and there's some real excitement. Could this David be the fulfillment? Could he be the fulfillment of the serpent slayer from Genesis 3? He's called David the king. But in the very next line, we read this. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You're like, whoa, what what happened here? So David fathers a child by another man's wife. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. 
He can't be that forever king that we hoped for. So just when we get excited about the fulfillment of this promised rescuer, Matthew reminds us that David is not that one. And in fact, when we look at his descendants, it's a downward trajectory because Solomon's worse than David. And there's some high spots in these kings, but ultimately they're just a series of Davidic disappointments that tell us that they're not the forever king. And then we take a cliff dive and end in exile. And the next 14 generations are a bunch of people that most of us haven't heard of before. They're, they're fairly insignificant. So we had our hopes up. They get dashed and we end up in exile and we end up where the promises to Abraham seem so distant. The promises of a rescuer seem so far away. And then Matthew says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. It's, it's like when you watch that movie or read that book and there's a battle scene and all of your hopes are lost, you're outnumbered, it seems like victory is impossible. And then the hero comes. And the hero is there and delivers us and we can rally around him and there's the hope and excitement that victory is ours. That is how this genealogy ends. But the genealogy also ends with a bit of a question. So there's this Jesus who is the descendant of David, all of our hopes, but we might say, well, I've been there before. I thought David was the fulfillment of those hopes. Is Jesus just another son of David who will disappoint? That's why Matthew gives us a second genealogy and says that Jesus is more than just a son of David. He's not another David who will let us down. This second genealogy will demonstrate that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 18 now, the birth or the genesis of Jesus Christ. So it parallels verse 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, having just described that Jesus was the Davidic hope, the, the son of David on whom we can hang our hopes, now Matthew ratchets things up in a big way by saying that he is a child from the Spirit. This is not a normal birth. Matthew's telling us that there's something about this unassuming boy that is miraculous, someone in whom we could hope. Now, understandably, from Joseph's perspective, that's a lot to take in. So God sends an angel to describe things and explain things to him in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, son of David. See the prominence of David again? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This angel gives assurance and explanation of the events. And his main idea here is that this baby boy is his savior. He is Emmanuel. So the angel begins by saying, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't elaborate much on that reality. He states that in order to prove something else. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus, this Emmanuel, God with us, he says, will save their people from their sins. Now, the the first century reader looking at that would think, he'll save us from our sins. Like when they thought of their greatest problem, they probably thought in terms of, we need a son of David, we need a forever king to kick the Romans out of our land. But Matthew's saying, the greatest problem that humanity has, the greatest problem that we have, is that we are in rebellion against God. And we need someone who will save us from our sins. Now, this all took place to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So many of you, when you come to these notes, like verse 23, you'll have like a little letter and maybe there's a marginal note or a note in the side that says, this is a prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. And so what's happening in Isaiah chapter 7 is this. So there's a, there's a Davidic king in Judah, and he's feeling the attack from the northern kingdom Israel and Syria. And so what this Davidic king ought to do is he ought to trust in the salvation that God provides. But what he wants to do instead is he wants to make an alliance with another superpower of the day to squash his enemies. So God sends Isaiah to him, and Isaiah is to deliver a message basically that's don't trust in foreign powers, trust in God's salvation. And he says that I'm actually going to give you a sign that this will be fulfilled. There will be a a young lady who will give birth to a son. And before that son reaches adolescence, those nations that you fear, they're going to be destroyed. So there is an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. So there's immediate fulfillment in that Isaiah's wife has a son. The young lady had a son. But there's also an ultimate fulfillment. So some words have like a general meaning. In a specific meaning. So this word young lady has a general meaning of a young lady. And it has a specific meaning of a virgin. 
And we have an initial fulfillment in the time of Isaiah pointing to the specific and ultimate fulfillment in the life of Jesus. And Matthew wants us to see that this promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So Matthew cites this scripture to show that Jesus fulfills the prophecy. And he wants us to know that Jesus is not just another human being. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So in chapter 1, we have two genealogies. We have this first genealogy that demonstrates that Jesus is this promised deliverer as a son of David. He's that forever king that we've been hoping for throughout the whole Old Testament. And in this second genealogy, verses 18 and onward, Matthew shows us that Jesus is God himself. He is Emmanuel. That's a lot to take in. That's a a lot to understand about who Jesus is. You know, as, as I try to teach my kids who Jesus is, I try to summarize this biblical data, Sometimes it's hard. Like It's hard to, to articulate things clearly. So we do it through a, a series of questions and answers. And one of the questions that I have for them is, who is Jesus Christ? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus Christ? Think about what Matthew has been trying to prove about the identity of Jesus. What they're supposed to say if they're paying attention on that particular night, is Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he is my Savior. That's the thrust of Matthew chapter 1. He is fully God. He is Emmanuel. He is conceived by the Spirit. He is fully man. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the seed of the woman. And he is my Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I've noticed that sometimes it's hard for me to to speak clearly about these things. So sometimes we use things like the creeds. that We just read the Apostles' Creed earlier. And those historic summaries of biblical truth can help us to speak rightly about Jesus and about God and his salvation. So... Sometimes in our family we read these creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. I commend those to you as potential helps for speaking rightly about Jesus. So we can ask, who is Jesus? But there's also a question, why does it matter? Why does it matter when Matthew sets out to prove these things about Jesus? Why does it matter that Jesus is fully human? Why does it matter that he is fully God? Well, we're going to develop that over the course of the Gospel of Matthew, but let me just give you a few inroads at the beginning. Why must Jesus be fully human? Well, so he can die for us. Human beings have the capacity to die. He will be our Savior through his substitutionary death. And so he can 
give us His righteousness. He can live perfectly before God. And so He can sympathize with us as our high priest. And why must He be fully God? Well, so He can bear God's wrath completely. Only God Himself can bear the wrath of God. So that He can live perfectly. Only God Himself can fulfill the law of God. And ultimately, so He can overcome death victoriously. Which points us to the end of the gospel. Well, I mentioned that these first four chapters of Matthew will establish the credentials of this king. They're going to ask us, is Jesus worth following? The answer to that is going to be yes. He is worth following. Matthew has just demonstrated that he is Savior. And when I encounter a Savior, what am I called to do? Well, Matthew's teaching ministry begins with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and rely. Forsake your own way and rely on the work of this Savior. Jesus is this forever king. And when you encounter a king, what is your response? You submit to his rule and do what he says. So that the gospel concludes with All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And then he commissions his people. And he is God. He is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And when we encounter God, what are we to do? We are to worship. And the first people who encounter Jesus Do just that. Here's what happens. Not to steal Chris's sermon in chapter 2, but verse 10 says this. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Jesus is our Savior, King, and God in the flesh. Trust him, submit to him, and worship him. I'm going to invite the band back up here. We're going to sing a song that some of you uh, associate with Christmas, but it's not exclusively a Christmas song. It's a declaration of our joy in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we've read your word, our hearts have been moved to rejoice in the salvation that you give us in Jesus. Father, help us to think rightly about your Son. Help us to respond rightly to your word. God, I pray that we would be worshipers this morning as we respond to your revelation. We ask for this grace in Christ's name. Amen.